go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 4 is where we're going to be at together today. Uh, Romans 4, um, and we're going to, we're going to tackle the entire uh, book, uh, our book, <laughs> chapter of Romans. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, then uh, we recommend the YouVersion Bible app, um, and uh, you can get that on your smartphone or tablet. Uh, the reason we recommend that app is because we place notes and the scripture references in there for you, uh, so it's easy for you to follow along in the events section of YouVersion. Um, so you can click on that and find that there. Also, um, you can uh, f- uh, find that if you're on YouTube or Facebook, there should be a link in the description. So you should be able to click on that as well and, f- and find that as well. It'll open up in a browser for you. In uh, 2002, my wife and I got married in 2002 and we uh, you know, started off in our married life and you know, I, I, I got a job, you know, I did the, the, the adult thing and got a job. And one of my first job uh, as a, a married couple was uh, I was working for a civil engineer as a land surveyor. And if you don't know what a land surveyor is, uh, a couple things that maybe will help you. You ever drive by a construction site, you know, and you see a guy looking into like a giant camera and then another guy holding a stick? Those are land surveyors. Uh, Or here's there's probably the best way to describe what a land surveyor does. Um, There are guys in an office, engineers, and they create plans for stuff based on math and their imagination. And then there's guys that actually build it. And there's an interpretation that needs to take place. How do we get from what these guys think should work on paper and what actually works in the field? And the, the land surveyor helps to interpret some of that stuff uh, in that process. So, you know, that's, that's what I did. I, I was a, a land surveyor for a little while. Um, and I remember there was a construction project that we were starting. And uh, we had to, you know, when, whenever you're starting a construction project, before any equipment shows up, any dirt is moved or anything, what you have to do is you have to establish um, control points over this so that you can know exactly where to put buildings and things. Um, you may not really understand that there's a lot that goes into that, but it is, it is precise. It's very exact where things have to be. And so, you know, we had to establish control points based off of benchmarks. So benchmarks are just, they're out there, you know, in the land and you, you come off these benchmarks and that's how you establish where everything is supposed to be in relation to everything else. And so uh, we had to figure out, we had to find this benchmark and we're driving through, you know, some backcountry woods areas, kind of not, not woods, more like just uh, shrubs everywhere. So we come up on this hill and uh, we, based on the, the description, we find that the uh, benchmark we need to, to get to is down a really steep hill about a quarter mile away through thick sagebrush. And so I had the privilege and opportunity because I was the lowest man on the totem pole. I was the grunt. I got to have a machete to cut a line through this sagebrush. Literally took me all day. I was so sore after, after doing this. It was a really hot day. It was, it was incredibly terrible. Looking back on it, I was thinking about this. Why didn't we rent a chainsaw? Like that would have been so smart um, to just go to Home Depot, get a chainsaw and cut through that thing. Anyway, whatever. Uh, so I had to, to, to do this with a machete. And so I was uh, essentially blazing a trail for my party chief to follow behind and uh, to get to that, that control point. And so, you know, really sometimes in life, there's just no path. You see where you need to go or you have an idea of it's got to be out there somewhere, but there's no, there's no path. You've just got to go first. You've just got to be the one who's going to blaze the trail. It's uncharted territory. And when that happens, it's harder 
It's slower. It takes a lot more effort. It can be really uh, scary at times. It can be really frustrating at times when you're, you're the one going first, when you're the one blazing the trail. But going first makes a path for others to be able to follow. That's what it does. You, you go down the road first and then others are able to take that path a lot more easily. And you and I, we've experienced that in our lives in various ways. Maybe there's some ways that you've got to go first, but there's a lot of other ways in which someone else has gone first and they've made it easier for you. And so, you know, you and I, we have the privilege of standing on the shoulders uh, of those who have come before us and they allow us to go further and to climb higher. And that's kind of the thought, the idea of what's taking place in Romans chapter four, that, that what's taking place here, here's our big idea, is that the path of faith that Abraham took blazed the only trail for all of mankind to follow. That when Abraham blazed this trail of faith to, to faithfully trust in and hope in the Lord, he was really the, the one that went first. And by doing this, he has allowed us to follow behind him. And really, that's the only path that is acceptable. That's the only right path to get to God. So we're going to take a look at Romans 4 today. We're going to look at it in four parts. We're going to do this piece by piece because we're going to look at the whole chapter. So instead of reading the whole chapter together, we're just going to take chunks of it and go through it section by section. So here's the breakdown of the four parts. Verses 1 through 8 is Abraham's righteousness by faith. Excuse me. Verses 9 through 15, Abraham's symbol of faith. Verses 16 through 21, Abraham's actions of faith, in faith. Uh, and then 22 through 25, Abraham's pattern to faith. So uh, let's pray and then we'll jump in and take a look at what's going on here. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to open it, to study it, to look into it. And a lot more than just words on a page and information to be translated into our minds. We pray that uh, your um, characteristics, your attributes would be transferred into our hearts, that you would cause us to become different, that you would change us, that you would make us like you, that you would show us where we need repentance, that you would give us the encouragement that we need, that you would uh, call us into the right kind of relationship with you. And Father, we pray that you would um, reveal yourself to us this morning through your word, and that as you reveal yourself to us, we would understand you better. Not just know about you, but know you. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, Romans chapter 2 and chapter 3, as we've been looking at this study through the book of Romans, Romans chapters 2 and 3 really lay out a very strong case against being made, made right with God through... Um, Religious practices and Jewish heritage. That, that's really the kind of the thrust of Romans 2 and 3. Essentially that religious practice and Jewish heritage are not enough to be made right with God. And, and the Jews needed to know this because they're Jewish Christians there in uh, Rome and also Jewish just Jewish non-Christians, just Jews in, in Rome that needed to hear this as well, because they needed to, to know that if they were placing their hope in this religious practice and Jewish heritage, it's misplaced hope. That, that, that's, that's not the way that you're going to get uh, to heaven. Uh, and, and so too, the Gentiles, which is everybody else, that's how the Jewish mind thought, there's Jews, and then there's the whole rest of the world, anybody who's not Jewish, that's Gentile, they needed to know this as well, because they could lose hope. 
If the only way to get to God was through religious practice and Jewish heritage, then okay, well, I guess I'm out. I guess I'm just not able to. And so then they would lose hope. And so we have to be careful of misplaced hope, but also not losing hope. And so that's where uh, the case has been made through chapters two and three to say, this is not the way that you're made right with God. And then in verses uh, 24 and 25 of chapter three, we saw that righteousness is the only, uh, is only by grace through faith in Jesus. That a right standing with God is only by grace through faith in Jesus. And really, this has always been God's plan. This isn't like a new plan that came about in the New Testament and, you know, Jesus showed up and he happened to be this really nice guy and so God's looking down from heaven saying, you know what, he's a really great guy. I think I'm going to change my whole plan. He's really cool. I like Jesus. I want him on my team. And so I'm going to elevate him to God's status and he's going to become more like me and then everybody else can kind of follow his pattern and try to do good and do right. That's not at all what's taking place. The, the idea of righteousness, right standing with God, um, salvation coming by grace through faith has always been the point. It's always been God's plan. It's, it's even interwoven throughout the entire Old Testament. And, and, and maybe as you're thinking that, you're thinking, I've read the Old Testament. Uh, what are you talking about? I don't read about Jesus in the Old Testament. I don't, I don't necessarily see Jesus's name written in the Old Testament. And, you know, there's a lot of laws and regulations and how to do this and how to do that and don't do this and don't do that. And uh, so what are, you, what are you talking about with that? And it's as though Paul anticipates this same kind of a response where someone says, yeah, that's a nice idea, Paul, but we're going to need some proof. So you're going to need to prove this to us. And so chapter four is an entire case study on the life of Abraham, using him as an illustration uh, to prove and illustrate the spiritual truth of salvation coming by grace through faith. You see, Abraham's life is a pattern for all of humanity. It's not specific to just Abraham. So let's look at this first part together. Abraham's righteousness by faith. Let's read verses one through eight. It says this, what then shall we say that uh, our Abraham, our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Uh, verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. You see here in this first section, Abraham's righteousness is declared by faith. Abraham is the greatest and most beloved national and spiritual leader to the Jewish people. If you were to ask who is the greatest person in the Jewish mind, they're going to go back to Abraham, the, the, the father of their entire nation, the first Jew, the one that God chose and said, you're the person through whom I'm going to create an entire new nation. And uh, like we'll, we'll see in, in uh, Genesis 15, God says literally the whole world is going to be blessed 
through you. And so God chose this guy, uh, Abraham, as, and he's this national uh, and beloved spiritual hero to the Jewish people. He's the beginning of it all. And notice it says there uh, in uh, verse one, what should we say then about Abraham, our father? Now that, what that doesn't mean is that, you know, he's this guy who had a whole bunch of kids and they all have direct, you know, connection to him as dad. It's to say that he is their forefather, uh, or their, you know, someone that's in their, their lineage uh, that they can trace their lineage back to. Now, it says there in verse 1 as well, what, what should we say about Abraham, our father, about what he has found according to the flesh? In the Jewish mind, in, in the, the Jewish uh, uh, heritage, there were a bunch of different stories and fables about Abraham, extra biblical stuff, not stuff you're going to find in the Bible, but different stories they would tell about Abraham. And, and one of the things that they would teach and they would tell about Abraham within the Jewish culture is that Abraham, and, and even it's taught still today, is that Abraham was chosen because of his righteousness, that he was so amazingly righteous that God had to choose him. They, they would even teach that Abraham was righteous from three years old. And so all of you who have toddlers, you're praying, Lord, can you give me that kind of three-year-old? Can I please have a righteous three-year-old instead of a defiant one that yells at me and says no and throws things? Because uh, that's what a three-year-old really does. And, and so, you know, Abraham, they, they have these fables and stories about him that he was righteous from that time. In fact, they elevate Abraham to this superhuman status. And I think we have the tendency to do the same thing. That when we read about Bible characters, we read about their stories through the scriptures, we have a tendency to sort of elevate them in our minds to this superhuman status. You know, yeah, God used Peter because he's so amazing and Paul is such a crazy, awesome scholar and what, a, what an amazing man. And Abraham, oh, the father of faith and this amazing person and Moses and David. And we, we tend to take these Bible characters and elevate them to superhuman status that, well, God used them and chose them because of how great they were. I mean, man, if I was picking a team, I'd pick those guys too. But the truth is, the reality is that they were just regular people, just like you and just like me. It's one of the things I love about the Bible is that the, the heroes of the Bible are shown in their reality. And Abraham wasn't a perfect man. He had a lot of faults, a lot of failures, a lot of sin in his life, a lot of issues that he dealt with, and yet he is still pointed to as this, this person that we are to follow in his example and in his footsteps. You see, exalting people vastly overestimates their potential greatness. It vastly overestimates the potential greatness of man, and it vastly underestimates the actual greatness of God. We have to be careful when we look at Abraham not to elevate him to this superhuman status because it puts the emphasis on the wrong thing. The, the right place to place the emphasis is to say, God, you are so good, so amazing, so awesome that you could take a man even like Abraham and use him. That you could take a, a man even like me and, and use me. When I elevate Abraham to this status, then I'm left with despair. Like I'll, I'll never be as awesome as him. I'll never, I might as well just go and live however I want and dive headlong into sin and live foolishly because I'm a victim and everything's stacked against me and I'm just never going to amount to, to whatever he was. But that's not the way that the Bible works. No, instead God intervenes in human lives and he elevates us beyond what we are able to accomplish on our own because the best of men are men at best. We're all just people. And, and that's something that we've got, we've got to keep in mind. And so Abraham's 
perceived righteousness by us, um, you know, maybe his perceived and relative awesomeness to us, it's not enough to be made right before God. Look at verse two, it says this, for if Abraham was justified by works, by the stuff he did, he has something to boast about but not before God, right? If, if Abraham was awesome, then we could say he was awesome relative to us, but he wasn't ever awesome relative to God. He's not going to be able to boast to God about his, uh, his amazingness because it takes way more than just being the best of a person, the best of men. It takes way more than that. You see, the truth is that Abraham is spiritually bankrupt. He's, he's spiritually bankrupt and he needs someone to accredit uh, spiritual righteousness to his account. And that's what verse three says. It says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This is Paul quoting out of Genesis chapter 15. I think it's verse six, that when Abraham believed in the promise of God, that's when God accounted to him righteousness. Now this uh, idea of account uh, accounted, it's a banking term. It's an accounting term. It's to basically uh, uh, credit to someone's account or to, you know, write a, a deposit into the ledger of someone's account. And Abraham's spiritually, spiritual bankruptcy before God uh, can only be resolved if God places a massive credit into the account of Abraham. And that's what God did. God, God gave this massive righteous deposit into Abraham's account to make him spiritually rich. That it wasn't because of what Abraham did, it's because of what God did that changed Abraham's status. You see, if Abraham worked, and that, then he earned it, and God owes him. Isn't that what verse 4 says? Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. See, if Abraham earned it, if Abraham was just awesome, if he was just great, if he was able to somehow uh, work his way into a right standing with God, then it wasn't that God graciously gave it to him. No, it's that God owed Abraham because Abraham was able to work for it. And if this is possible, then Abraham is an example of self-righteousness, not an example of faith righteousness. And, and so as, as Paul is describing this for us here in Romans 4, he's lifting up the idea of Abraham to say, he's not what the fables have told you. He's not a self-righteous, self-made man. No, he's a God-made man. He's a faith-righteous kind of made man. Because look at verse 5, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. You see, um, the ungodly are the only ones who are qualified for the grace of God. Those are the only ones. It's like Jesus said, I didn't come uh, to, to heal those who are well already. I came to those who are sick. Just the same way that you don't go to the doctor if you're not sick. I don't just make a habit of going to the doctor just because I feel like it. And I guess more men should go to the doctor more often or whatever. And my wife tends to make doctor's appointments for me because of that. And uh, you know, it's, if it's not broken, I'm not going to try to fix it. And so I don't really just go to the doctor because I feel like it. Uh, but you know, that's the same analogy that Jesus is using. You don't go to the doctor unless you're sick. You need to be made well. And so too, you won't come to Jesus in faith unless you realize you're spiritually sick. You're not going to come to the physician unless you realize that you have need of something. And so the ungodly are the only ones who are qualified for God's grace. So maybe you're thinking, I'm just, I'm not good enough for God. I'm, I'm too depraved for God. There's too much wickedness in my life. I got to clean some of this stuff up first. I've got I've to get my act together before I come to God. And, and his word to you right now would be, no, you don't. 
Don't try to clean yourself up. Don't try to change your own life. Don't try to make yourself better because your righteousness, your self-righteousness is never going to be enough. But he'll give you his. He'll take your life. He'll clean you himself. And he'll set you in a position of being made righteous because the only ones who are qualified for the grace of God are the ungodly. Those people who are self-righteous, they have no need for grace because they think they're already good. They don't have any need for the grace of God. You see, only God's grace can give the righteousness you need and only faith can obtain that righteousness. In verses six through eight, we see that King David, another hero of the Hebrew people, weighs in on, the matter, uh, on this, this matter and that he fully supports the idea of the doctrine of a imputed or given righteousness. Look at what it says there. It, just as David describes the blessedness of the man uh, to whom God imputes righteousness. Imputes means to be imparted, to be given, uh, that it's accredited to, that it's, it's distributed to you from somebody else. And he says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And so he has this contrast, a, a contrasting idea that instead of I- imputing to you the sin, uh, the, the payment of the sin, the penalty of the sin that you deserve, he gives you the, the imputation, the impartation, the, uh, the gift of his grace instead that you're made right before God. Secondly, we see Abraham's symbol of faith in verses 9 through 15. Not only righteousness by faith, but the symbol of faith in verses 9 through 15. Let's read this together, uh, verses 9 and 10. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While, circumcised, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. You're like, man, that's a lot of circumcision going on there. I don't know what's, what's happening at all. <laughs> let's let's kind of wade through this a little bit and break it down because uh, the wording seems to be a little bit... Uh, a little bit crazy. See, Abraham and David, the two guys we're talking about in the first piece, they're both uh, Hebrew heroes. They're both these men of massive Jewish stature. And, and as we get to the end of verse 8, the, the argument can very well be made, well, yeah, they're both Jewish guys. They were both uh, circumcised. They both tried to follow the law of God. They were, you know, both godly kind of guys that way. And so, you know, the, the Jews taught that these, were, these men were righteousness by their circumcision. And so, good people would have to be circumcised too in order to be made righteous. But look at what it says there in verse 9, that um, the righteousness came upon Abraham, uh, for we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. And what he's referencing is what we saw earlier in, uh, in the chapter, uh, in verse uh, 3, where God attributed, accounted to Abraham righteousness from Genesis 15. And, and the way that this, this flows in Genesis 15 is that God comes to Abraham and he says, hey Abraham, come outside. Look up at the stars. You see, you see all of those stars in the night sky? I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as all those stars. Now just think about that for a minute, how mind-blowing that would be. I don't know when the last time you looked at the stars was, and maybe, you know, around here in Denver, it's really hard to see the stars, whether it's through smog or through city lights or whatever. You kinda, but when you get out, outside the city, you get out into the, you know, the, the country or the wilderness or the mountains or whatever, you find some space and you look up at the, the immense night sky and all of those stars. And Abraham was told by God, 
I'm gonna give you that many descendants. And Abraham's, I'm sure his mind was blown, but he actually trusted God to be able to do it. And when, as the moment he believed God, in that moment, he was declared as righteous. You see, it wasn't, it wasn't anything Abraham did. It was everything God promised and the fact that he believed in the promise of God. That's what changed everything. You see, the timing of this is very important though. Here's what I want to grasp with this. That's what Paul is talking about here in verses 9 and 10. It's not just this idea that Abraham believed and that's where it, when it was accounted as righteous, but the timing is really, really important because... Um, he was declared as righteous while he was uncircumcised and, when, uh, and even when circumcision wasn't even a thing. Prior to their circumcision even being instituted, that's when Abraham was declared as righteous. It wasn't even on the horizon. He was declared as righteous in Genesis 15 at the age of 86, without any kids. And his wife, Sarah, is barren and they've never been able to have kids. And, uh, you know, they're now getting into their elderly age. And can you imagine trying to have kids in your 80s? That sounds, I'm 40 and I don't want to, you know, I can't imagine starting over right now, having little babies and changing diapers and all that stuff. That, it's a young man's game, <laughs> changing diapers and chasing babies. And so, uh, you know, the, the whole concept to me uh, is crazy. And so to be 40 years, years even older and then to be starting having kids then is a crazy thing, but he believed God for it. But then circumcision, circumcision was instituted by God in Genesis 17. Now you don't really have to be a genius to know that 17 comes after 15, right? But here's the thing that I want to grasp with this. Genesis chapter 17, when God institutes circumcision with Abraham, it's 13 years later. Abraham is now 99 years old. 99 years old when he does this. You see, the whole idea here is that he's not doing it to get the blessing, but as an expression of having received the blessing. He's saying, I am, I am having faith in God that he is able to perform what he said he would do. Look at verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness uh, of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all, uh, all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. You see, his faith was in God before circumcision was ever put in place. And then when he, when he went through circumcision, he was doing it as an act of faith. Look at verse 12. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. The whole concept here is just to say that Abraham was trusting in God and trusting in the blessing that the Lord would provide and supply. Here's how David Guzik says it. Abraham was counted righteous before he was circumcised. Therefore, Abraham was not counted righteous because he was circumcised. That's a big thing to grasp. It flies in the face of the Jewish teaching. This is the exact opposite of how the Jews were raised. And so this would, this would be mind boggling to them. This would be earth shattering to them. This would be a really huge revelation to them. And maybe it is for us as well, because we have a tendency to say these people were amazing in the Bible. And yet God is bringing them down to our level. You see his circumcision was the display or sign. Do you see that there in verse 11 or seal of the faith that he already had 
and was continuing in. The faith was already placed in God when he was 86 for this. And uh, the, the circumcision happens 13 years later as a sign, a seal, a symbol of the faith he had had all along and the faith he was continuing in uh, in that time. Because even at that time, at 99, he still didn't have any kids. He still didn't have one child that was born uh, to his name through Sarah. Uh, and so what, what, are we, what are we doing here? He's trusting in the Lord. Look at verse 13. It says this, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For those who are of the law are heirs, if those who are of the law are heirs, the, then faith is made void and the promise of no effect because the law brings about wrath for where there is no law, there is no transgression. You see, the law wouldn't come for another 400 years. He's talking about this idea of the law, that Abraham was made righteous before there ever was a law to keep. 400 years later through Moses is when the law would come. You see, the law was never the means of producing the promise of God. That's the whole point. That's the big concept. The promise of God was given and the law wasn't the means of keeping the promise of God. That's not what it was all about. You see, it's always been by faith. Because as it says in verse 14, if those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made void and the promise is made of no effect. If you can earn a right standing with God through self-righteousness, then Jesus' death was a nice gesture, but it was completely unnecessary. Think about that. Let that, let that weight come down upon your soul for a moment. If you could do anything to get a right standing before God, then it takes Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, his sacrifice for you, his, his brutally bloody beaten body on that cross, and it reduces that to something that was a nice gesture, but totally unnecessary. Is that the way that we want to think about Jesus? Is that the way that we want to approach him? Uh, of course not. The whole way we want to approach this is to say that that sacrifice is vitally important for us to be able to come to relationship with God. You see, the point of the law was never for you to earn righteousness from God. But verse 15 tells us it's to define clearly your need for God because he's so perfect and you're so depraved. And there's this gulf in between. There's this chasm of impossibility between you and God. And Jesus bridges that gap. He's the only one that makes it possible. So not only do we see righteousness by God or by faith, uh, Abraham's righteousness by faith and Abraham's symbol of faith, but also Abraham's actions in faith in verses 16 through 21. Look at verse 16. It says this, therefore, right, that's a big word for us to get, therefore, it's transitioning thoughts. It's saying not only this truth, but let's connect it now to something else. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed and not only those who are uh, of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of of us all. You see, there are a lot of things in scripture that are both and kind of issues. There's lots of things in the Bible, you know, where we might tend to draw a line and say, well, it's got to be this or it's that. It's either this or it's that. The Bible makes a lot of things both ends. 
there's tensions and stuff and there's these things that we have a, a hard time grasping. They seem to be opposing and yet they work together. Here's an example of something that's like that. Uh, there's, there's a doctrine in the Bible that teaches about the sovereignty of God, that God is in control, that he is all powerful, that nothing happens unless he causes it or allows it. That, that's, that's a teaching of the Bible. And yet there's another teaching of the Bible that says man is responsible and you have to make a choice and choose this day whom you will serve and will you submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus. And so there's these two seemingly opposing concepts and yet they are both and working together. This is not one of those. Works and faith are not a both and concept. Becoming righteous before God by either your ability to keep the law or Jesus' sacrifice for you, it's not both and. It is either or. Either you are righteous because you are perfect and you have never sinned and you've never violated God and you have lived perfect your entire life or Jesus died for you. There are, there are no in-betweens with all of this. Gaining a right standing with God is either works or grace. You see, the entire premise of grace is contingent on faith because if it's not by faith, then you earned it. You get that idea? You grasp that concept there? That's what he's talking about there in verse 16. And so Abraham is this father of faith to bring us into faith. So whether we are find ourselves in a Jewish heritage, having the law, or not in Jewish heritage, not under the law, faith is still the same for both. Faith is the only way for all of humanity. Here's how Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done so none of us can boast about it. There's, there's no reward of salvation. You're not going to earn your way into heaven. You're not going to do enough good stuff to get God to like you. That's just, that's just not the way it works. If my righteousness is based on my performance, then my bad day could mess it all up. All you need is one bad day, one bad moment, one slip up. One, one unguarded moment where you don't control your emotion or you don't say the right thing or you, you fall into that temptation, that's all it takes. And it messes the whole thing up. But here's the reality. God, in his grace, never changes. Do you see that there? Where it says, um, therefore it's of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure. When your hope's in God, when your trust is in him, when your belief is in him, when your faith is in his ability, then it's a sure faith because it's not in, it's not in the day-to-day, the -day, well, am I going to be good today? Is my good stuff going to outweigh my bad? No, it's, it's in God and his ability. And because he is perfect, your faith is sure in his grace. Verses 17 and 18 give us the anatomy of faith. Let me, let me read it for us and then we'll take a look at it. Verse 17 says this, As it is written, I have made you the fa a father of many nations in the presence of him who he believed. God who, is, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope and hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Now, this is sort of wordy, but let me try to break down what's taking place here. This is essentially giving us an anatomy of faith. That, that faith begins in the place of believing in the general attributes of God. That, that's where it has to kind of start. 
that, that God is, is good, that God is creator, that God is in control, that God is just, that God is kind, that God has wrath, that God, you know, just the general sort of attributes of God are out there. But it has to move from general to specific. That's how faith works. So it's not enough just to say God exists. That general belief of God existing is just to to line yourself up with reality. That's just to say, you know, I, I believe what actually is. But that has to move from general to specific. And the thing that you have to move to the specific is to the things that God says. You see, it says that uh, they're um, according to what was spoken. See that there in verse 18? So it's, it's the idea that I'm going to move from general to specific and then hold on to that in the not yet. That, that there's this, this time between what God said and it actually coming to pass and you've got you've to hold on in the middle of the not yet. That, that yes, God's given, it's already given, but it's not yet received. And that's where faith holds on. There are these three components that all work together. You see, we don't believe in a distant, disconnected deity. We don't believe God as some far off, disconnected God who's uh, uninterested in the affairs of human life. The God of the Bible is intimately concerned with all of the details of human life and individuals. That's why so many times we see God intervening with individual lives through the scriptures. And it's not just them, it's you as well. The fact that you're even listening to this right now and thinking about this right now, it's proof that God is dealing directly, intimately with you individually. And Abraham's faith is according to what is spoken by God. You see, faith isn't trying to get God to buy off on your things and make them happen. That's not what faith is. Faith isn't that you come up with stuff and you tell God what that is and then he's somehow supposed to just cause that to take place. It's not like, you know, I have these desires, God. I have this stuff that's in my heart. I've got these things that I want. And so God, you've got to make those things take place. That's not the way faith works. It's not, you know, my feeling, I feel really strongly about this. God, I, I feel that like this needs to take place. Or when I come to church or I tune in and, and, and I just want to feel the presence of God. I want to feel him moving. And so that's what faith is. No, that, that's not what this is talking about. Or faith is not a purpose that I invent, that I say, here's what I want my life's purpose to be. Here's what I want to accomplish. Here's the stuff that I want to do. Here are the places I want to go. Here are the things that I want to own. Here, here's all the, the purpose that I invent for my life. And then I try to get God to buy off on that. And, and I use faith to strong arm God into doing my thing. Th- those are all false ideas about what faith is. Faith is to believe in what is uh, according to what God has spoken. It's trusting in what God has said. That's what faith is. Notice verse 19, it says this, and not being weak in the flesh, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He didn't waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and believing f- and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. You see, Abraham had a lot stacked against him. He was a, an old man uh, uh, at 99 years old. 
His wife's 10 years younger at 89 years old. They've been given a promise 13 years earlier that they were going to have a son and they never, it just never happened. And so they had a lot stacked against them. It could very easily have been that just the time uh, of waiting on this, that just their, their hearts wavered and they just thought, you know what, let's just not worry about this. And maybe, you know, as you consider that, you can think of, well, did, didn't that happen? I mean, didn't they have this wavering faith? Didn't Abraham, when they went to, uh, to Egypt, didn't Abraham say, hey, don't tell them you're my wife because they'll try to kill me. And didn't that happen a couple of times? And didn't, didn't uh, um, Sarah and Abraham decide that they were going to have a surrogate child through uh, Hagar, uh, Sarah's handmaid? Didn't, didn't they do this? Weren't, weren't these, wasn't this, wouldn't that qualify as wavering of faith? What's going on here? You see, even though there was no natural reason that they should ever have kids, they're barren, they're beyond the childbearing years, they still chose to trust God. And it's under these circumstances that Abraham gets circumcised. It's under all this at 99. That's when Abraham decided to get circumcised. And he did so at the direction of God. Right? God's the one who invented the idea of circumcision. It wasn't like Abraham was saying, here, God, I'm, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to mutilate my body. I'm going to do some crazy stuff in order to show you how serious I am. No, it was God's direction. It was a sign that his faith was still alive and not dead because faith is never passive, but always active, even in the waiting. Even when you're waiting for, for whatever it is to take place, even in, when you're in that position of the not yet, faith is still active. It's not just asleep. It's not just sitting by the wayside. They didn't waver and it seems like they did, but it's, it's to say that uh, their faith wasn't without struggle or difficulty. There's a big difference between struggle. There's a big difference between difficulty and, and going through hardship as you are working out that faith and disbelief. There's a big difference. You see, righteousness from God is declared righteousness. It's not actual righteousness. We talked about this a little bit uh, last week. The idea that when God declared or attributed or accounted to Abraham righteousness, it was declared righteousness. It wasn't actual righteousness. That Abraham didn't become righteous. He was just declared righteous. He was given the righteousness of God. And so too it is with you and me. Think about it like this. The, the day that I got saved, I was 17 years old. When I gave my life to Jesus, I finally realized that his death was for me and I submitted my heart to Jesus. And, and in that moment, as soon as belief, as soon as faith entered my heart and my mind and I declared the reality that Jesus' death was for me, that moment God declared me as righteous. Do you think that I was perfect at that time? You think I didn't have any sin that I struggled with? Any issues that I dealt with? Absolutely, absolutely, I did. That, that my life didn't immediately get cleaned up and I was just perfect from that moment forward. Of course not. There are a lot of ingrained habits and, and ridiculousness and sin that was deep within my heart and mind. And that sticks with me even to this day. I'm not perfect today. I know that's hard for you to hear. Pastor, say it ain't so. <laughs> There's gotta be someone who's perfect. Well, it ain't me, all right? That I've been walking with the Lord for over 23 years and I am still not perfect. But here's the thing. The, this, this, uh, there are things that, are, that were in my life then that are no longer in my life today as God has perfected those things. He's removed those things. The process of sanctification takes the, the declared righteousness and makes it actual righteousness. That God works with you working through those things. And so Abraham's faith in the Lord is this declared thing. And, and even though he had these, I wouldn't even call them lapses of faith, he had these struggles in life 
that, that wasn't wavering faith. It was him working through trusting the Lord. He was blazing the trail. He was going first. He was having a hard time with some of this stuff because he didn't have anybody to look back to. He was the one going first. You see, verse 21, Abraham's faith is fully convinced in God's ability. God's general attributes inform me that he will do what he said he would do. That because I can see God's faithfulness, that God, that's a general attribute of God. God is faithful. Then I know that when he says something, I can trust him to actually do it. And that's where Abraham was saying, you know what? I haven't seen it happen. It's been 13 years. Can you imagine waiting 13 years for God to do something? He told you he was going to do it. He told you it was going to come through. And then the whole thing gets put on a shelf. Not just for a day, not a week, not even a month or two, but 13 long years. And Abraham still believed God could do it. Abraham still believed that God was going to be faithful to his word. All right, fourthly and finally, Abraham's pattern to faith in verses 22 through 25. It says this, verse 22, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone um, that it was imputed to him, but also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Now, the whole picture of Abraham's life comes all to this one point. The whole reason we've been looking at Abraham, the whole reason we've been studying this part of his life and seeing Abraham's faith is to get to Jesus, is to get to this point. You see, the active, submissive, continual faith of Abraham is what was accounted to him as righteousness. It was the basis for his relationship with God. That by faith, he had relationship with God and was working through his life. Abraham, Abraham didn't have some sort of vision for his life uh, that, uh, you know, through what some would call a holy imagination. Just You just imagine through your holy imagination whatever you want life to be and you just imagine that out there and then, you know, you just tell God to go get that for you. That, we don't see that anywhere in scripture. Nowhere at all in the Bible do we see that take place. In fact, what we see is the opposite. God said it, they believed it, God performed it. That's how faith works in the Bible. That other kind of faith, this holy imagination nonsense, that you just have to have the tenacity that holds on to what you imagined against all odds, that's, not, that's nonsense, it's not faith. You see, God's not obligated to perform your vision or your dream simply because you believe it hardly or hardly, hard enough. God's not, he's not obligated to do it. You just might have the tenacity to make stuff happen because you just, you held on really hard. It doesn't necessarily mean that God did that stuff for you. That, that, that God's not obligated to perform that stuff in your life. You see, Abraham's life of faith is not written in Genesis so that we can marvel at how great a man Abraham was. It is written as he is an example for us to follow. He's blazing the trail before us. This is how relationship with God works. It's by grace through faith. The same faith Abraham had is the same faith Paul had, and it's the same faith that you and I need to have. God specifically chose certain things in Abraham's life to detail for us. And the, the narrative of his life, the story of his life is an extremely powerful teaching tool when we see it for what it really is. Not that Abraham's amazing, but that God's amazing. And he can use a man like Abraham and even take a guy who's barren and old and has no way of having kids and miraculously bringing children through him. And not just one, but a whole nation 
and even down to those who are not Jewish are grafted into his family through faith. Verses 24 and 25, we see this, that the very same righteousness, this right standing with God that was accounted to Abraham can be accounted to you as well. How? By the same way he got it, by faith. Hebrews eleven six 6 says it like this, and it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. You see, the difference is that Abraham in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament saints, they looked ahead to an expectant hope. God is going to provide. God is going to save. God is going to deliver. God is going to make a way for all of this to be right. And we in the New Testament, we look back at, uh, at revealed truth. They look forward and expectant hope. We look back at revealed truth that we look back to the cross and we say that's the moment when all of those promises were fulfilled. That's the moment when God made all wrongs right. That's the moment when sin was paid for. And by faith, they look to that moment. And by faith, we look back to that moment. But it's all by faith in Jesus and that moment of the cross. You see, the way it worked for Abraham wasn't a special arrangement that he had with God. It's God's standard for relationship. Our faith is also uh, not just in the general attributes of God. It's good to start there that he's there, he's, he exists, he's creator, he's good. These are important and they, they inform our faith, but saving faith specifically, specifically trusts in Jesus to pay for your sin and that his resurrection qualifies you for justification. See that in verse 25? That Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses, because of my offense against God, my sinfulness, and was raised up because of our justification. That, that Jesus, his resurrection shows that the payment was accepted in heaven and that you can be seen as just as good as Jesus, just as perfect as him. See, God's, always, God's way has always been the way of faith. In the Old Testament, they looked ahead to the promise that God would fulfill. In the New Testament, we look back to the promise fulfilled in Jesus. Faith leaves no room for, self, for perceived self-righteousness. Our fallen hearts and minds, though, they're bent on trying to find our own righteousness. That, that we're constantly trying to get our own righteousness and show our own righteousness and display it and say, look how good of a person I am. Look, I do these things. I go through these processes. I, I enact in these certain ways. I get involved in these certain causes. And look, I'm a good person. Our world is constantly trying to declare their own righteousness because that's what's ingrained into the human heart. But, but that's not the way that God has designed it. That's not the way of relationship with God. The way of relationship with God is by grace alone, through faith alone. So let me ask you this question. What's the ground that you're standing on? What ground are you trying to stand on before God? Because there's only two different grounds. One of them is earning and deserving. That's the ground of works. That's the ground of a works-based relationship, earning and deserving. Or are you standing on the ground of believing and receiving? That's the ground of faith. That's what God calls us to. We've got to resign from our own self-righteousness, our own, the business of trying to display our goodness and trying to make ourselves right before God. You see, you don't, you don't need to earn God's love. You don't need to earn it at all. In fact, you can't. All you can do is receive it. So will you? 
Will you receive the love of God? It's time for us to come to Jesus. Whether it's the very first time and you recognize that his, sin, his life it was given for your sin. Or it be, you come back to Jesus. Or maybe it's a moment to say, I need to, like Abraham, remain firm and strong in that faith. And Lord, would you help me in that as well? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study it together and to dive in and to see uh, the life of Abraham on display for us, this life of faith. And we ask that you would help us, God, cause us to be a people like Abraham, that we hope in you and trust in you and believe in you. And even against all odds, and even when other people aren't trusting you and hoping in you, and the world seems like it's going the exact opposite direction, God, give us the courage and the, the faith to believe in you. Jesus, you are so good and we're so grateful for your sacrifice for us. And we pray that you'd be glorified today. In your name we pray, amen.